hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. And so I just came every day and I sat on the sofa. And then when they had a problem, I would jump in and help. And Fleckhouse says, what are we going to do with you? And I said, listen, I come from a little area in Arkansas. And when you got something to do, you do it. And I had to get over here because I wanted to work for you. And I'm here and I'm ready to work. And he said, all right. This is Print is Dead, Long Live Print, a podcast about magazines and the people who made and make them. I'm Deborah Bishop. I'm George Gendron. I'm Patrick Mitchell. If Mariana, Arkansas looks like the kind of place that Walker Evans would have photographed, that's because it is. And it was in that Cotton Belt town in 1936 that William Pascoe Hopkins came to be. Born to Charles, a cotton merchant, and his wife, Martha, young Will Hopkins was on a path to follow his father into the cotton business. But thanks to the intervention of a distant aunt, a fashion illustrator in New York City, Hopkins' parents were persuaded into shipping their creatively inclined boy off to the celebrated Cranbrook Academy of Art in Detroit. Hopkins became the Arkansas Traveler. After school, he took a job at Chess Records in Chicago, designing for the likes of Muddy Waters, Willie Dixon, and Bo Diddley. But soon the road was calling again. One Sunday afternoon, I'm walking down the street in Chicago. I said to this friend of mine that I was walking with, I said, you know, I'm gonna go to Germany. Through a friend, Hopkins discovered Willie Fleckhouse, one of the most innovative, creative, and influential graphic designers in post-war Germany he knew he had to go. Through his revolutionary work at the magazine Twen, Fleckhouse taught Hopkins everything about the business, including the 12-part grid, his layout innovation that transformed the way magazines were designed. After three years in Munich, Hopkins moved to New York to take the helm at Look magazine. Look enjoyed a spirited rivalry with the more conservative Life magazine and published hard-hitting stories on civil rights, racism, gay marriage, and the environment. It featured the more cutting-edge design of the two, which Hopkins credits to his implementation of Fleckhouse's grid system. After Look closed in 1971, followed by Life in 1972, Hopkins would go on to open his own studio, where he continues to run a thriving design business, Hopkins Bauman, in Minneapolis. After a non-stop 65-year career in magazine publishing, Hopkins' memory is rich, but not quite what it used to be. But thanks to his partner in work and in life, Mary Kay Bauman, who filled in the gaps, we learned why Hopkins seemed to attract magazines with American in the title, how to drive a Volkswagen from Chicago to Germany, and about the good old days when art directors got wined and dined by French publishers. I want to start where we all start at your birthplace. If somebody looked at your career, you know, you're over in Munich, you're working on Twen with Willie, you're the art director of Look Magazine during the heyday of those big magazines, Look and Life. You go on to redesign every magazine imaginable here in the U.S., you do Express in France. People would think you grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. You had very affluent parents who were art dealers and socialites, and then you just slid right into this world, man. But we've heard a rumor that you were born and raised in Arkansas. Could that be true? 
That was the truth. Tell us a little bit about where you were born. I was born in Mariana. I was born in the hospital in Memphis because my parents believed in that kind of thing. But I was raised in Mariana, Arkansas. And it was, what did I say? 6,000 people. Yeah. 5,000 were black and 1,000 were white. Yeah. And how many art directors were there in town? There were none. (laughs) (laughs) There was an art director about, you know, a 17-year-old or something who did the, the high school year book. But he was not necessarily a role model of yours. (laughs) So when you were 12, what did you want to be? You know, I didn't get into anything. I mean, I I did do, I did some painting and some stuff like that and so on, but not a lot. I went to the University of Arkansas, which was the only place I could get in because I had such poor grades. I went there for a few years and I was not doing well because I was really going to all of the stuff in the art department, and I didn't take any other courses, hardly. And my parents talked to my aunt, who was in Connecticut. She was an illustrator in New York, a fashion illustrator, and said, what can we do with this kid? And she said, we had friends who were at Cranbrook Academy of Art outside of Detroit. And so that sounded, that wasn't too bad for my parents. Did you know what Cranbrook was then? No. (laughs) (laughs) And my parents didn't want me to go to Gotham. There's no way they were going to let me loose in New York. But I could go to Detroit because a lot of people from Mariana or Arkansas or whatever, you know, went to Detroit because they worked in the car business. In the factory. So anyway, I went to Cranbrook. I went up there and I stayed for two years. I mean, I could do some some sort of illustration or something in the art school at University of Arkansas, but there was really not much to do there. I mean, <laughs> there were a few teachers, but there wasn't a lot going on. But I, I really knew that I didn't want to be a cotton buyer. And I didn't want to hang out there. And so this idea of going to Cranbrook was really interesting. And I had no idea what I was getting into, but I went and I had a great time. Well, you must have, because it couldn't have been that much later that suddenly you show up (laughs) at Willie Fleckhouse's studio in Munich, Germany. Yeah, well, after I left Cranbrook, I went to Chicago and I had a friend who was an A&R man at Chess Records. And I started doing some album covers and stuff like that. And other odds and ends around there that they needed done. And I did that till they fired him. And the Chess brothers asked me to come in and have a meeting with them. And they said, we'd like for you to do some more stuff here. And I said, well, yeah, but you fired my friend. (laughs) And I said, I don't like that (laughs) or something. And so they said, well, okay, all right. And they said goodbye. And I said goodbye to them. I'm anxious to hear about not so much how you got 
to work with Willie Fleckhouse, but what was it like? I mean, you read about him today, and he's kind of been rediscovered, it seems to me, at least rediscovered really? here in the U.S. Yeah. People talk about him as one of the greats, number one. Number two, some people say, at least in Western Europe, he really created the role of art director as we know it today. Yeah. Max Bill in Switzerland was who he copied. What was the magic in that studio? Let me just back up for a moment. What drew Will initially to Fleckhouse, somebody had handed him a European design magazine while he was at Chicago yeah. Scene. And Fleckhouse was featured in there, and Twen was featured in there, and Will said, I got to go work for this guy. So one Sunday afternoon, I'm walking down the street in Chicago. I said to this friend of mine that I was walking with, I said, you know, I'm going to go to Germany. Anyway, it was that influential on him. And he told his then wife, we're going to Germany. And she said, well, I have to finish the school year. She was a teacher. <laughs> and they packed up and went to Germany. And... Take it from there, Will. And we got on a freighter, and uh, I knew the captain on the freighter <laughs> through my friend in Detroit, and uh, we hop, skipped, and jumped. Let's well, fast forward to you're in the studio. That's what I want to hear, Matt. Yeah. All what right. was that so, like? So I got there to, to Frankfurt? Cologne. Munich. No, we got up north. Yeah, he arrived in Cologne and heard that the magazine had moved. So they had gotten a Volkswagen. We took our Volkswagen. He, he took the Volkswagen and got to Munich, and they were camping out in the campground. And you showed up at Twin. In my suit. <laughs> walked up all the stairs, because they didn't have an elevator. It was the sixth floor of the building. And said, here I am. And they, they gave him back his portfolio, which he had sent before. And they said, well, uh, Fleckhouse is on vacation. Can we call you when he gets back? And he said, no, because I'm at the campgrounds. I'll just sit here and wait. <laughs> so he waited, and after several days, they got into trouble, and Will was very good mechanically, so they brought him into the art department. I mean, I was sitting in the art department, yeah. waiting. Yeah, but that's a different definition, Will, of being <laughs> in the art department. <laughs> so I waited there. I knew I had to wait there. I couldn't get out of there because if I did, I wouldn't be able to get back in. And so I just came every day and I sat on the sofa. And then when they had a problem, I would jump in and help. And so Fleckhouse gets there and he says, you're the Hopkins. And I said, that's me. And he said, well, I'll see you later. And he has a little office that was as big as two phone booths <laughs> that was off of the big room that we were working in. And his editor comes in, and he's talking to the editor. And then he somehow realizes from the editor that I am there to work for him, and I'm not going to go away. <laughs> and he said, oh, my God. <laughs> and he says, get that guy in here. So now there were three of us in a space of the desks that we're sitting at here. There were three of us in the room, and he says, what are we going to do with you? And I said, listen, I come from a little area in Arkansas, 
And when you got something to do, you do it. And I had to get over here because I wanted to work for you. And I'm here and I'm ready to work. And he said, all right. Did he (laughs) say it with that level of enthusiasm? (laughs) That's something like that. (laughs) And and then I think he told me to go wait because he's still talking to the editor. And Fleckhouse ran the magazine. The editor didn't. (laughs) Fleckhouse ran what it was going to be. So anyway, Fleckhouse comes out and he says, let's go through this project and see how much we can do this afternoon. And he had these spreadsheets and he would draw on that sheet or whatever, you know, sometimes just write something on it and I would go execute it. And that, that little sheet was a, the 12 part grid. That was it? A little tiny thing? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've got it around here. We can put one up on the screen if you want. Yeah. Anyway, so, the beauty of the 12 part grid is that it provided a standard throughout the publication. And so you could have two columns at six units. You could have three columns at four units. And then you could mix it all up. And it was a way to build scale and contrast within the publication. I was just about to say, when you look at pages, for example, from Twen in those days, it feels as if it were executed last month. You worked with these very large and very horizontal images that broke up the verticality of the grid that was just Mm. breathtaking. The other thing about that grid is because of those 12 parts, it was a way to build, well, you would say white space, but it was really breathing room within the publication so that you could focus on the content. It was a way to get your eye to focus more clearly on the content. So that 12-part grid almost suggests a kind of Germanic engineering approach to design in a certain kind of way. And I'm curious whether people were enamored of that in the same way they became enamored in this country with the engineering of Mercedes and Audi and BMW. Has that ever occurred to you? or I've never bumped into people who had any idea about it. When I tell people or show people, when we deal with some publication that we work with and we sit down and we say, now this is how we put a page together, we show these little <laughs> sketches, with little pages, and we start talking about how you can look at this and how you can work with it. One of the things about the grid... You know, you start out with a blank page and it's like you're working in a vacuum, but the underlying grid was a way for you to easily organize content, pictures, words, and so on. Yeah. And that was a real key to it is like you weren't reinventing the wheel every day. And it was a way to create a certain consistency throughout the publication. So it looked like you were in the same place. I'll get back to Fleckhouse, but I met Will. He was a visiting lecturer at the University of Minnesota. Look had just folded and he walked in and he was like, oh, this is magic. He's our director from Look Magazine. And this is in the journalism school. And he walks in with a three-piece suit, pocket watch, and a sheepskin coat thrown over his shoulder. <laughs> He was like a celebrity walking into our classroom. Anyway, he showed us this 12-part grid, and we were producing a magazine, and we just got it like that. It was just amazing, and suddenly everything made sense. At least for her. At least for me. (laughs) 
One of the things that Will has told me about working for Fleckhouse that was truly amazing working there, because of the way Twen looked, it was a showcase for photographers. So photographers from all over the world were walking into the Twen offices from the U.S. and England and Italy and all over. So he got this tremendous education in photography from some of the greatest photographers around. The other thing that was very interesting about his time at, um, I think one of the reasons Fleckhouse liked him being there is that he had, this was after World War II, he had an American under his thumb. He had his little American. So any visitor that came into the office, he would bring by and introduce him to Will. Or he would call me to come into the office or something like that, just so that he could, I remember once he had like about four East Germans in there, and he says, Hopkins, and they sort of shook, and I come in, and he said, you know, what's a Coke or something? I mean, he didn't have anything for me to do. He just wanted them to see me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> For you establishing his democratic cred? Well, yeah, it was just that he had an American, you know. <laughs> and you look at these guys from the other side, they didn't know what to do. They were astonished that an American was there working for him. They were astonished that there would be an American in that office. Did they list you on the masthead as the American oh, Hopkins? They, they didn't list me on anything. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of Mag Culture. Read our online journal, listen to our podcast, and visit our shop to discover why we're convinced print is very much alive. All available at magculture.com. But you do manage to leverage the work that you had done there, and you come back and you're now on the staff. You're an art director at Look Magazine, right? Yes. 67? Yep. Were they using the 12-part grid there, or did you eventually use it? Oh, I did. So you used it when you became the art director? I came there, and I started doing layouts, and I, I just used the grid. And I got Neil Shakery and Don Manel and Renee Schumacher, and they grabbed onto it when they came to work there, and I said, this is how I do this. And they said, you got it. They got it just like that. The other people who had been working there before never paid a lot of attention to it and didn't know how to use it. So this is, 67 is during the heyday of Look and Life magazine. Mm-hmm. And I'm yeah. curious because Life was probably twice your size in terms of circulation, I want to guess. It was larger. And I'm really curious how uh, you guys... I don't know if it was that Look was bi-weekly and Life was weekly, but that wouldn't affect the circulation. Life was definitely bigger than Look. I guess my question is, how did you and your colleagues at Look think about, if you did at all, differentiating yourself from Life magazine across town? I don't think we really paid a lot of attention to it. After Will was at Look, I 
was at Life magazine. Yeah. And having been around those guys at Life, they thought of themselves much more as a news magazine, not the monthly Life, but the weekly Life. They consider themselves the news and pictures. Whereas Look was a little more trend-oriented. And a little more feature-oriented, I yes. think. Yes, and they both did features, but Look was definitely more feature-oriented, more trend-oriented. I can't help but think back to a special issue that you guys did in, must have been January of 1970, and the issue was the 70s, and you were looking forward yeah. to the decade. And you did a piece that to this day I think is stunning, and I forget what you called it, but it was really the first major piece that I can think of about climate change. Mm -hmm. And th now keep in mind, this is like two years before the Club of Rome had even published their The Limits of Growth which put climate change and sustainability on the map. So you got sort of way ahead of the curve. But not only that, you decided not to publish the cliched photos of environmental degradation. You want to talk about the art direction on that particular story? I think it was Paul Fusco did the photography. Right. Yeah. He did most of the photos. George Leonard was the editor on that issue. And he would come to New York and he would set up his office in this hotel room about a block from the office. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm liking this guy already. <laughs> we would go there and on things like that issue, we would get down. I mean, but I worked like hand in glove with Fusco and we were laying out all these pages and we were doing them on these little grid sheets. And then I would put them in my pocket and go back to the office and then start handing them out. Someday, I really got to see what you have in terms of memorabilia for these so-called little grid sheets. <laughs> One of the things that I think was key about both Twin and Look was Willie Fleckhouse was an extremely strong art director and almost acted as yeah. the editor. At Look, Alan Hurlbert was equally as strong, and he was the art director who hired Will. And so he had these two great, strong art directors who were extremely editorially involved in the magazine. They weren't just doing pretty pages. And I think that was very important for yeah. his career as, as yeah. mentors. Yeah, and you started a trend that continued through the decades during the heyday of magazines, which I no. came to really resent. And that was that you art directors ruled the goddamn place. <laughs> you, were, you were art directors and editors in chief. <laughs> well, I don't think it was quite that. No, I know. I know. <laughs> but having come from the other side of the newsroom, I just have to point that out. <laughs> I think that you as an editor are very visually aware, George. But, you know, it's interesting that I've worked for really good editors and some really lousy editors. And the lousy editors cannot really see how to pace a story visually or put it together conceptually. Whereas I think art directors, well, many art directors have that about to almost like a movie director, direct how a publication unfolds. Yeah, you know, the reason I guess I focus on this is that my first job was at New York Magazine, and when we moved from 32nd Street to 41st Street, the art department, the design department, was adjacent to the newsroom. Uh -huh. So my four square desks were a couple of feet from people like Walter Bernard, and Milton was constantly there from Pushpin, and 
Mm-hmm. And um, I took it for granted that magazines were run by these teams, these <laughs> editorial and design partners. Uh-huh. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong about that. <laughs> I thought that was the norm. Uh-huh. So I'm curious about the social side of your magazine life during your period at Look. Who were your friends? Who were your buddies? Who would you go out and have a beer with? Well, my friends were mostly the West Coast guys. <laughs> <laughs> George Leonard's and John Poppy and Paul Fusco moved out there and, you know, Doug Kirkland was out there. Did you guys have a big office out there or were you talking about a bureau? What was it? It's more like a bureau, but they really hung out in Mill Valley. <laughs> so every time I went out there, I went to Mill Valley and uh, didn't spend a lot of time in the city. Yeah, but... I suspect you went out there often. <laughs> as often as I could. <laughs> I really liked them. I had a great time with them. And I learned a lot from them. Were you still at Look when it folded? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was the last day at Look for you? What was that like, Will? Well, for quite a few weeks, I would come in town from Connecticut, and I had to go do something, and I didn't have any place to go, and I would go to Look. And I would go up, and the offices were empty, and my office was empty, basically. But I could go in my office, and I could call on the phone, <laughs> things like that. Were you looking for a job? What were you doing? I was just, I was trying to find out what to do. <laughs> One of the things that Will has told me is that on the last day, everybody was trying to get people jobs. So there was a lot of phone calls being, everybody was concerned about that. And then you said that you were on the phone trying to get people Mm. jobs. Douglas Kirkland told me that he came in and he immediately got his images out of there. Yeah. He took his images because they were donating the photography to the Library of Congress. For example, all of Paul Fusco's images went to the Library of Congress. And once they were in the Library of Congress, it was like hell to get them back out. But Douglas had all his images. So that was just a very interesting aside. That was really interesting. So back then, having possession of the actual images was 99% of the IP battle, right? (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean, Paul Fusco later, art was a Jimmy Corrales who did a lot of the very important civil rights images, he could only get 10 of his images out at a time in order to make prints of his negatives, which is difficult. The reason I'm so interested in this is because when I was at New York, of course, that was, you could argue, a spinoff, right? The magazine, the Sunday magazine for the Herald Trib. And when former Herald Trib people talked about the last day of the Tribune, it sounded like people talking about the death of a family member. I mean, it was really, really traumatic for people. In his memoirs, Jan Dwenner talks about the last days at Rolling Stone and going into an office that had been his office for 30 years. And little by little, the place is literally being physically being dismantled. So I wonder whether anybody at that time had the sense that as look closed, life closed, this was the beginning of the end of an era in a way. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it was. The other interesting thing is I came to know the Look people much later, but it was very much like a family. And 
they would always gather around stories and writers would work with the art director to lay out the story so you knew what was going on in the story. So there was a level of collaboration that was very key. The other thing is that look at a room where they put all the layouts up on the wall and the story was not considered for the magazine until it was laid out. It makes sense the minute you describe it, right, for a magazine that was as visual. And when I was at the Monthly Life, we had closings on Monday, and we would often be doing stories on Monday that would close that day. That's extraordinary. We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible by the support of the Society of Publication Designers. The SPD powers the future of visual storytelling, setting the standard for editorial excellence, and shaping the future of visual culture. For more information, visit spd.org. Well, talking about how visual that magazine was, I have to talk about a magazine that was just so important and influential, and that's American Photographer where you were not just the art director or design director, you were a co-founder. And I'm curious about how that came to be. Well, Sean Callahan asked me. Sean had been an editor at Look? No, at Life. Life. That's right. And he was like a junior editor at Life. And he had a friend, Alan Bennett, and they got together to form this magazine. And they asked me to be part of it, and I jumped in. And it was, for a while, quite fun. (laughs) Presumably, you had your own studio at this time, right? Basically, yeah. So I'm curious, when they described American Photographer to you, before there was anything to look at, how did they describe the magazine? What was the concept? You know, at that point in time, the photography magazines were all gear-oriented, and this was much more focused on the, uh, the image and the art of the image and the philosophy of the image and the concept of the image. Explored the act more of doing the photography from a mental state of mind versus just the equipment. And just featured exquisite photography. The reason I asked was that some of us thought of this kind of as a reincarnation in a way of Look Magazine, but about photography for photographers. I think that's a pretty good description. The beauty of the magazine, I mean, it was a real entrepreneurial effort, and it was started with very little money. My recollection is that Alan Bennett somehow got the money through Alan Patrickoff, and it was like $250,000, which is just unheard of. I don't know how they did it, but he was turning that money over constantly. Weekly. (laughs) Alan Bennett was just brilliant at keeping it all together. But the other thing is because it was a showcase, they didn't have to pay for images. The photographer wanted to be in the publication. So you didn't have that overhead of photography because you were doing stories about that. Interesting, that was, though, when you talk about $250,000, I was trying to start my own magazine back then, and it was a regional magazine. So I suppose you could argue that it shouldn't have been quite as expensive as American Photographer. But you know, people warned me, including Alan Patrickoff, who I pitched and had several conversations with about my concept. And that was the problem with starting with too little capital was you would invest your time and energy and your capital in the premier issue. And then you'd be out hustling for more money, and the subsequent right. issues would suffer. Right. And that is a miracle that you guys were launched on something like $250,000 and were able yeah. to sustain that level of excellence. 
that makes some sense to me because um, I was following both that and American Health uh-huh. at the same time. <laughs> T-George. Yeah, what? we used to joke that Will could only do magazines with American in the title. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were doing that, but you were also doing redesigns of Forbes, Sports Afield, Architectural Digest. I think you did L'Espresse in France. Do you mind if I ask? I'm just really curious for all of the designers who are out there right now. What did you guys charge for a redesign back then? Just ballpark. Hell, I don't know. It wasn't a lot. <laughs> well, it's, it still isn't a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was. I don't have any idea of what it was. But they took me to France and dined me and wined me and took me to the south and all that kind of thing. And <laughs> I had a great time. <laughs> I don't know how much I made from that. Yeah, that's oh. the French. Yeah. I was trying to acquire, this is after that time period, but when I was running Inc., I tried to acquire a magazine, uh -huh. Prise, which was Inc. in France. And the uh -huh. same thing, they wined and dined me. I can't believe it. And, and they would take you sailing, and they would, it reminded me of the Japanese. It was kind of like, well, we have to get to know you before we can even consider doing business with you. And then at the end, they refused to sell it to me. <laughs> <laughs> But but I look back, that was one of the most enjoyable courtships I ever had <laughs> professionally. So here you are. You are the quintessential New York designer, and then you leave. Mm -hmm. You leave New York and you go to Minneapolis. Did your bride or future bride have anything to do with that? <laughs> we, we were married at that time, and we were partners in our firm, Hopkins Bauman. And right. we were doing, on a regular basis, a children's magazine called Kids Discover. And we were trying to do a number of book projects. And this was after 9-11. And I'm originally from Minnesota. And we said, you know, we ought to think about getting out of New York. It's getting too expensive and we can really work anywhere. So we found this great loft on the Mississippi River on the north side of Minneapolis and bought it and moved out here and have not regretted it since. Is that the place that Pat and I saw when we were out there with you? Yes. That, yes. Yeah. That place was spectacular. Yeah, we love it. So we can live and work here and hopefully die here. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I mean, the interesting thing about being, and you probably not being in New York, when we were in New York, all of our friends were in publishing in some way, shape, or form. Here, our friends are architects, doctors, teachers, and photographers, and other people too. But it's a much more, I guess, realistic way of living. It's not so much focused on just one industry. Yeah, I understand that. Well, even here in Boston, I have to say, it can lead to a kind of professional bubble that you're in, in terms of, you know, your friends are other editors and designers, illustrators, photographers, so on. And I don't know, I have to say selfishly, I've always found those people to be extraordinarily interesting to hang around with. But I'm curious, when you guys, well, I guess since you, you announced to your friends and colleagues that you were leaving, and this is post 9-11, that probably didn't come as quite the shock because there were a lot of people who were thinking about whether they wanted to stay in New York at that point. 
Yeah. We thought that people would say, are you out of your mind? But they didn't. They said, Minneapolis, oh, that's a good idea. Coincidentally, we were living in a building on the west side called the Abthorpe, which is one of the great west side buildings. And it had been sold and they were going to turn it into condominiums. And we were in a rent stabilized apartment and I think paying $1,700 a month for 2,000 square feet. And they were going to sell our apartment for four and a half million dollars. We said, they're going to try and get us the hell out of here. So that was another motivating factor to move. So we've talked about a small town in Arkansas. We've talked about Munich. We've talked about New York, Chicago, mm -hmm. Minneapolis. I'm curious whether either or both of you feel that location kind of has an impact on people who are creating print products. Oh, I think it does. I don't know so much anymore. I mean, it certainly has expanded. I don't think it's as much New York-centric as it used to be. However, I mean, certainly the talent in New York is, oh, I don't even know if that's true anymore. We did this magazine called American Craft, which was a bi-monthly, and we had yeah. people working all over the place. We had yeah. great photographers in every city that we needed. So I think you can really do it. I don't know if there's the business acumen outside of New York for publications. You know, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it quite from that perspective. Yeah. We were talking recently with Dorothy Kalins about Metropolitan Home, and she was talking about how interesting it is to take a look at a magazine like Inc. that was very much influenced by its founder, Bernie Goldhirsch, who was a graduate of MIT and was really enamored of innovation and entrepreneurship. And Vast Company was very influenced by the fact that its founders had worked at the Harvard Business Review. Wired out in San Francisco, impacted obviously by the fact that you had the birth of the PC out there and kind of the concentration of technologists. So I'm not sure you could have launched Inc. or Wired or Fast Company in New York given the unbelievable influence of Wall Street. It's mm -hmm. just something we think about sometimes, mm -hmm. is that connection between where you are and where you work and the publication that you... I do think that the East Coast does dominate the news cycle. Yeah, that's interesting. Will, I'm curious, going all the way back to this, where we started this conversation in a small town in Arkansas, did that play a role in your career in any way? Was that an advantage for you? And I ask that because... We were talking to Kurt Anderson about Spy Magazine, and uh, Kurt made the comment, you know, it's ironic when you think about Spy and how urbane a magazine it was in many yeah. respects. Kurt comes from Nebraska, and what's his name? You know, Mr. Vanity Fair comes from Canada. And so we got into a conversation about how their naivete about New York was actually a source of competitive advantage. They weren't part of that crowd. They didn't want to be a part of that. Uh, yeah, I could see that. Knowing Will and being from Minnesota, when I moved to New York, I felt it was an advantage not being from New York because I was humbler. I wasn't as arrogant. I was <laughs> curious. And I think Will has that same quality. People liked you. You know, you're pointing out something that's true, which is if you grew up in New York or around New York, lack of humility and you know, arrogance were considered to be sources of competitive advantage. Right. right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, people would always tell us that we were approachable. We would see people and we were kind to people. 
and we were good with our employees and all those sorts of things. I think maybe not coming from New York, you know, I can't say that verbatim, but it was definitely true in both of our cases. Yeah, I could see that. First time I ever actually met you face to face was when Pat and I were out doing a presentation for your event. You know, by the time we got on the plane to come back, I felt like I had known you my whole life. <laughs> As I do now. <laughs> Will Hopkins and his partner in life and in work, Mary Kay Bauman, continue to do client work from their loft overlooking the Mississippi River in downtown Minneapolis. For more information, visit their website. We have some exciting news. Print is Dead, Long Live Print has joined Hub and Spoke Audio Collective a nonprofit association of audio storytellers dedicated to promoting and sustaining high-quality independent podcasting, including Out There, a podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. The race is called Infinitus, but in my head, I call it Infinitus, like an inflammation in your infinity gland. <laughs> That's journalist and runner Jordan Wurfsbrock, and in this episode, she explains to Out There host Willow Belden why not finishing a 500-mile race through the Green Mountains of Vermont turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to her. You can hear the whole story at outtherepodcast.com and learn more about Hub and Spoke at hubspokeaudio.org. If you'd like to connect more deeply with our guests, be sure to visit our website where we have complete transcripts of all our interviews, along with portfolios, archival photos, links, and other great information. Visit longliveprint.co interviews for more. In other news, we've got swag. Yep, you can get Print is Dead merch on our site at longliveprint.co shop. All purchases go directly to supporting the podcast. Check back often. We're adding new stuff all the time. And finally, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter by using the form on our homepage. It's the best way to stay up to date on all of the Print is Dead news and to receive advance notice on the latest episodes. Your contributions are the lifeblood of this podcast. Here's how you can support us in this work. One, become a sustaining patron by making a monthly donation. Or two, make a one-time donation in the amount that works best for you. Visit printisdead.co slash support for more information. Print is Dead, Long Live Print is a production of Modus Operandi Design. For more information, visit our website, printisdead.co. Or if you're an optimist, longliveprint.co. Follow us on social media at printisdeadpod. Please give us a like and a review on your favorite podcast app. It really helps. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>